Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join Join us Inside inside the the Morgue. Welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. Just like last week, this week's episode is also taking place in the Miami area. Today, we're watching Rosewood, Season 2, Episode 5, titled Spirica and Santeria. Dr. Beaumont Rosewood Jr. is a private pathologist working in Miami, Florida, with law enforcement and other medical examiners. So the opening scene starts with us looking at an altar of some kind. There's a photograph of a man on the altar, and we see blood splash across it, and then it is set on fire. What a way to just kick off an episode. It was very spooky. It was very spooky, and I've never watched Rosewood before, so I don't know if if they always have like a really dramatic opening, but Mm -hmm. that it's definitely an attention grabber. We then cut to Rosewood having lunch with his sister, Pippi, discussing issues with their mother. They go to leave, and Rosewood goes up to their waitress about an issue with the bill. After some light flirting, he notices swelling in her palms and tops of her hands and says that dandelion greens will reduce the edema in the soft tissue. Is that true? I really, I meant to look this up. (laughs) So did I. And I don't know if he was just saying that. Well, if anybody listening knows if that's true, comment or DM us, because I'm very curious. Because with our line of work, sometimes my hands get a little sore. Yeah, my hands were really sore this morning cutting. You did a lot of, yeah, you did a lot of work this morning. So anyway, back to the show. Rosewood leaves and he makes his way to his pathology services office. He's chatting with Mitchie Mendelson and Krista when suddenly a man with a briefcase walks in demanding to talk to Rosewood. The man is named Doug Russell and he says he needs Rosewood to do an autopsy for him. He opens the briefcase and it is filled with $100,000 in cash. And Doug says that the autopsy is for himself and then 24 hours, he will be dead. He thinks someone is watching him everywhere he goes. He mentions things about fires, and he does not want the police to be involved. He begs Rosewood to take the money and to solve his upcoming murder before running out the door. Rosewood goes down to the morgue, which honestly is one of the more accurate morgues I've seen on one of these shows. It has huge clear cabinets with jars and chemicals, several metal autopsy tables and sinks, and it is a well-lit room. It's not just like one dark room with a single flickering light. The entire room was so well-lit, I was very surprised. We love that. We love PPE, and we love a well-lit room. Rosewood meets Dr. Adrian Webb, a new ME, and Detective Via is down there as well. He tells the two of them what just happened upstairs, and that he needs Via to work on the case with him to see if there's any truth behind what this man was saying. In the bullpen upstairs, she does a search on Doug Russell. He's a black male, 35 years old, an organ donor, and he's been lodging two or sometimes three complaints a week for the last nine months against everyone and anyone in his life. In these complaints, there is talk of fire and a lot of it. Via thinks that he's just a paranoid conspiracy theorist, but Rosewood thinks Doug could be onto something and that someone might be after him. Via and Rosewood go to the bakery, where Doug works, to see if he can tell them any more about his situation. They search the front of the store, and it appears empty, but then they go to the back of the store towards the kitchen area, and they open the doors to find Doug on the floor with no pulse. The next scene, we see Rosewood talking to Doug's sister, Nadine, and breaking the news to her. She tells Rosewood that Doug paid for everything in cash, all the time. 
Rosewood says that he thinks that's a lot of money for a baker to have, and Nadine reveals that baking was just Doug's passion and that his money came from working in tech. Doug has designed a tracking app and sold it for millions to some internet company two years ago. Rosewood tells Nadine to take the briefcase of money because he's going to work Doug's case pro bono. Doug's autopsy is being prepped by Mendelssohn, and in the autopsy room, they have a giant monitor with scene photos pulled up. And I think we should get something like this for our morgue. I want to find it in the budget so we can get something really cool like that. I know. I think it would be super helpful when we have cases and we need to go back to scene photos. Maybe we can pitch it for our new facility. Yes, I think we should. Make whoever's building the building watch all these shows and be like, see what they have there. I want it. I want that. So Mendelssohn starts the examination with an external exam, starting at the head and moving down the body to the feet. Green flag here because, as we have mentioned in earlier episodes, autopsies do begin with an external exam of the decedent. Mendelssohn notices on the victim's left ear there is some type of burnt substance, possibly some kind of ash. The spatter pattern looks like it might have been something that was flung in his direction, maybe from a lit match. He took a sample to test and found that the substance is actually sage. Via and Rose would go to question Doug's ex while Mendison collects ocular fluid for an immunoassay screen. So ocular fluid refers to fluid in the eye, and we have discussed vitreous fluid in previous episodes and how we collect it from the eyes to send for tox testing. However, there is also aqueous fluid in the eyes, which fills up the anterior and posterior chambers of the eyes, and it allows the cornea to expand and protects from dust and bacteria. It provides ocular pressure and it transports nutrients. The aqueous humor is produced by a part of the eye called the ciliary body located above the eye's lens. The aqueous humor must enter and be drained from the eye at an equal rate, exiting the eye from a structure called the trabecular meshwork. This tissue lets fluid drain through it. The main difference between vitreous humor and aqueous humor is that there is a set amount of vitreous humor in your eye and it does not move freely between two chambers like aqueous humor does and it remains in the posterior chamber. It mostly consists of sugar, salt, collagen, hyaluric acid, and water. Doug's ex, Jillian, says that they've been divorced for a year. She said with the help of prayer and the mother of all living things, Yamaya, they were able to build lives apart from each other. Orisha Yamaya is the ocean mother goddess of Santeria, which is an Afro-Cuban religion practiced around the world. Yamaya was brought over to the New World by enslaved Africans as early as the 16th century. Both her and Doug practiced Santeria, and that explains the sage that was found on Doug. Lots of religions use sage to ward off evil spirits. Rosewood asks Jillian if she knew anyone who would want to harm Doug, and she abruptly responds with, yes, I killed him. She thinks she spelled Doug to death and claims she had help from St. Ocean. I was shocked when she just matter-of-factly was like, oh yeah, me. It was me, like not even trying to hide it as she's being interviewed by like three detectives. Oh yeah, it was me. Sorry. I should have started with that. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, my name's Jillian. I killed my husband. As her interview continues at the precinct, she says Doug lived his life by the word of the Oshiras, and sometimes you have to sacrifice yourself for the good of others. She lit his picture on fire, performed a ritual, and in a few hours, Doug was dead. In Doug's will, he left all of his millions to Jillian. Hey, that kind of rhymed. I was just going to say, hey, that rhymes. <laughs> Rosewood goes back to the autopsy, and we see Mendelssohn doing his initial cuts. So I see a red flag here, because the body isn't blocked, and only the head is blocked, and... When we say block, we are referring to a head block, which is just a plastic curved autopsy positioner. It's about a 7x5 plastic piece. We put it under the body in the top middle portion of the back between the shoulder blades. 
uh, and it just helps us elongate the neck and the torso so we have an easier time eviscerating the body. But you can also put them under the arms and legs to position it however you need it for the autopsy. We also block the head, so when we go to take the brain out, the head just sits higher up so you have enough room at the bottom to cut with the bone saw. So Mendelssohn only blocked the head and not the body. He also made a midline incision instead of a Y incision, so I'm also giving that a red flag because we do a Y incision to make it easier for the funeral home when they prep the body for viewing. We would only do a midline incision if we knew the body wasn't going to be viewed or if it's super badly decomposed. But there is a green flag after all of this because he has a mobile camera that's above him and he can move it around so it's over top of the body. Adding that to the list of things I want. Yeah, I'm adding that to our list of things that are really cool from these shows. And he's taking pictures as he's moving through the autopsy, which we love to see too. Rosewood collects blood and cuts the nails to send out for testing. He also re-examines the forensic photos Mendelssohn took of the back of the legs, and it looks like there's an outline of a B and a 7. So someone hit Doug with a car hard enough to cause trauma to the popliteal vein in the leg. So on the leg, it looks like a blood clot had formed in that vein, and the popliteal vein is located on the posterior leg just behind your knee if you will, your knee pit. That's always what I tell people. It comes off the femoral vein and will eventually continue to the posterior tibial vein. From the cut fingernails, they were able to scrape off a substance which they can now confirm is paint. It's acrylic, high gloss, durable, and this paint must have come off of whatever car hit him. Via comes down and she says that the paint is metallic green and that it came off of a 72 Skylark. The driver's name is Nick Holmes and she goes to find him for questioning. She confronts him and he takes off running, where Rosewood is sitting in the back seat of his car that he goes to. Now, innocent people don't run. So Nick says that he didn't hit Doug, he just lightly pinned him against Doug's car and his. Which, in my definition of hitting, that is exactly hitting. I didn't hit him with my car, I just tapped him. Just lightly pinning. If someone lightly pinned me with their car, I would say you hit me with your car. So due to Doug being hit by the car, a blood clot formed in his leg, which then traveled up to his lung. So technically, Nick did kill the man. So they say now. He says he didn't want to hurt Doug, but just wanted to scare him. So a green flag here, because this is something that can happen, and it's called a pulmonary embolism. So a pulmonary embolism, or a PE, is a blood clot that gets stuck in an artery or the lung and prevents blood flow to that part of the lung. They can commonly come from other areas of the body, such as the leg. In fact, Alice and I have both done autopsies where a PE was suspected and we found it in the lung, and the pathologist formed a dissection in the posterior leg to then confirm where the PE originated from. Yeah, I remember when I first assisted on an autopsy like that. It was fascinating to be able to trace it back to the leg. Yeah, we have to cut into the back of the leg. So we flip the person over so they're on their stomach and we cut into their calf muscles. You make little centimeter cuts and you can see exactly where the clot formed. Yeah, it's really interesting. So Rosewood once again talks to the victim's sister, Nadine, who thanks Rosewood for finding out what happened to her brother. Rosewood asks Nadine if Santeria is what caused her brother to change so drastically toward the end of his life. And Nadine says no. Doug had loved Santeria since he was a kid because his grandfather had practiced and Doug was very close with his grandfather. She says it used to bring him joy until he sold his business. She isn't convinced that money changed him either, though. 
She just can't put a finger on what made Doug change, and she guesses that she never will. So this makes Rosewood think that there's more to the story and that there's something else that changed Doug's personality, possibly on a chemical level. The antibody test on Doug was not run because Mendelssohn thought it was unnecessary since Doug showed no signs of anything that requires cerebral spinal fluid to be tested. Cerebral spinal fluid is a clear, colorless, watery fluid that flows in and around your brain and spinal cord. So Doug showed irritability, depression, suicidal ideations, and aggressive tendencies. Rosewood thinks that there was a chronic infection by a spiricate bacterium causing Lyme disease, but there's no way to know for sure since the body had already been sent to a funeral home, so they are going to need to get the body back. Via goes to Jillian's house, and Jillian is there with her new fiancé, Hunter, who owns the butcher shop next to Doug's bakery. Via asks for a written statement from Hunter confirming his whereabouts the night that Doug died. Later on, it doesn't matter where he or anyone else was that night because Doug was killed by a poison. At Jillian's house in one of the vials she had on her wall, there was something called oleander. It is a type of plant and it is extremely toxic. In the right dosage, oleander can kill you. And a little true crime fact, if you are familiar with the story of Lavinia Fisher, the alleged first female serial killer in the 1800s, it is suspected that if she did kill anybody, she killed her victims by making them oleander tea. And we got some information from an allthatsinteresting.com article by Erin Kelly titled The Legend of Lavinia Fisher, The Woman Said to be America's First Female Serial Killer. So Lavinia Fisher owned an inn outside of Charleston, South Carolina, where some believe she murdered men who came to stay at her inn with oleander tea. However, it has been believed that Lavinia Fisher's story has been somewhat sensationalized into more of an urban legend than a true crime story. But she really did own an inn outside of Charleston, and she was sentenced to death in 1820 for a highway robbery. But a lot of her story has been filled in by local legends. Some say that after her arrest, hundreds of bodies were found under her inn, while others say that she never killed anyone, and a lot of people believe she died an innocent woman. Either way, her story is what came to mind when they mentioned Oleander T for me. That's super interesting. Isn't it? I gotta read more about it. I know, I just, as soon as I heard Oleander T, I was like, I know there's some story out there. The more I looked into it, I was like, oh, it's, I guess it's more urban legend than true crime, but still an interesting story. Back in the show, Rosewood gets the body back from the funeral home, and they start to conduct a bunch of different tests to confirm what killed Doug. They flip the body to the backside to get spinal fluid. Also, red flag here. So remember earlier in the episode when we said the body had a midline incision at autopsy and not a Y incision? So a midline incision starts at the tip of your chin and goes all the way down to the pubic symphysis. Well, the body is now sewn up in what looks like a Y incision cut. So this is more of a red flag for the writers and production people because it's just inconsistent with what they showed before at autopsy. Anyway, they're running the antibody test on the spinal fluid and under the microscope, they see an encapsulated yeast cell, but it actually turns out to be an air bubble on the microscope slide. But Rosewood says that Doug was in fact poisoned and he knows who did it. Rosewood and Via go to Jillian's house again to get a confession from who Rosewood suspects poisoned Doug. Some kind of ritual is underway, but Rosewood isn't so sure that it's Santeria. Once the guests realize that they are there, they all turn on Rosewood and Via quickly. It is revealed that Jillian and her fiancé had found out that if Doug died, she would inherit his fortune. Doug was infected during a blood sacrifice, and they traced the blood and found that Doug suffered from a new variant of Kritzfeld-Jacob disease. It had been eating away at his brain for the last nine months. This disease is also known as mad cow disease. Once you're infected, then your blood is also infected. So this is a green flag because this disease does lead to mental deterioration within a few months and can ultimately lead to death. 
Hunter, Jillian's fiance, confesses that he was the one who provided the infected blood. I just realized how that makes sense because he's a butcher, so he would have access to the meat and the blood. He has access, and he was right next door. Yeah, that's why he had access to Z's meat. I'm like, where did he even get that? I'm like, oh, he owned, he was a butcher. See, this is the second week in a row where something just clicks for me. Last week, I clicked that there was a vampire storyline. This week, I clicked that the butcher had diseased meat. I'm always learning on this podcast. Hunter said that Doug was a lunatic who needed to be put out of his misery, and he didn't believe in Santeria like Jillian did and wanted Doug out of his life for good. The case that we searched long and hard for to relate to this episode is the case of Carolyn Lamb. This case happened in Maryland in 2003. Carolyn Lamb, a 64-year-old office administrator at a Bethesda school, phoned her husband. She had a headache and felt dizzy and asked him to come drive her home. She thought it was just the stress of the job. Then the headaches worsened and Lamb began getting lost in her own home. Within two months, Carolyn Lamb was dead, believed to be the victim of a brain-wasting illness known as Kritzfeld-Jacob disease that affects one in one million people. Her age and symptoms, doctors say, pointed to a strain that is related to but not caused by eating beef from animals with bovine spongiform encephalopathy or mad cow disease. No brain biopsy or autopsy was performed on her, which would have then confirmed the diagnosis. Do we know why there was no autopsy? I'll get into that. Oh, sorry. I was, <laughs> I'm just like so sucked into your story. I'm like, why wasn't there an autopsy? Even after the cause of his wife's death was recorded with the Maryland Health Department, Charles Lamb said, nobody contacted me. I was surprised. Physicians now need to look more closely at patients with atypical neurological disease by performing diagnostic tests and autopsies. Lamb was an energetic woman who owned a meeting and planning business during the 1980s and was very active in her community. Her headaches were soon followed by other symptoms in late February. Her husband even said that she would often get so disoriented and confused that she would get lost walking around the dining room. That's horrifying. Right? That's so sad. It scares me. Like, I can't, like, feeling lost in your own home has to just just be heartbreaking. A new level of torture. That's horrible. The Kreutzfeldt Jacob variant is an illness linked to mad cow disease and is a fatal illness characterized by an abnormal protein called a prion that attacks and builds up in brain tissue. The cause of this disease is unknown and it strikes suddenly and usually in people older than 40 and kills within weeks or even months. Lamb's diagnosis was based on her age, symptoms, and the disease's speed and test results. But to be sure, the doctors would have had to done a test on the brain tissue. Lamb died on March 25th, 2003. Her husband did not want an autopsy, partly because the disease can spread to people who have had contact with the victim's nervous system tissue. So that's why there was no autopsy, because it aerosolizes. Interesting. Okay, that makes sense. There is currently no cure for this disease. So we got this information from an article by the Washington Post called Mad Cow Fear Raises Concern in Maryland Death, which will be linked in our show notes. So... After all of this, technically, since in the show, Doug did have an autopsy and nobody was wearing masks either during the autopsy, they technically were all exposed to this variant, but TV just bypasses all of that. Oh my God. Should we give that a red flag? Red flag. (laughs) Red flag. (laughs) It's a a spontaneous red flag. Oh my God. I forgot to mention the PPE (laughs) that they lacked, especially, oh my God, being exposed to mad cow disease. All right. Well, changing our tally at the bottom, that is the end of our episode. And we tallied a total of four green flags and now four red flags. So I guess technically it may slash may not pass based on how accurate you think it is. 
It might pass, but only a little bit, just on how much medical information they did get right, but mostly not for post-production、mm-hmm. and making sure that the autopsy cuts were accurate. Yeah. If you enjoy our podcast, share it with friends, family, and coworkers. We'd love to grow our platform on here. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod or on Twitter at Inside the Morgue, and DM us with any show suggestions or any comments that you have for us. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye. Bye. Thank、you